Hey everyone, I'm Simmer, a student at Harvard University. And I'm Roger, a student at King's College London. And, and this, this is That Many Podcast. Podcast. In this podcast, we spoke to Dr. Diana Bianchi, a neonatologist and the director of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. We discussed making complex research understandable, the impact of COVID-19 on the Institute's short-term and long-term priorities, and balancing funding for common and rare disorders alike. Today's show is perfect for anyone excited about research or just intrigued about the future of medicine. So without further ado, let's have a listen. Hi, Dr. Bianchi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with us. So we normally start the podcast by asking the question, why did you decide to study medicine? Well, first of all, thank you, Simmer, for inviting me to speak with you today. It's, it's a great pleasure. Um, I've always, always had an intellectual curiosity, but I think that my interest in medicine started when I watched my cat giving birth when I was four years old. <laughs> So I'm the only person in my family who is in medicine or science. So I always call myself the mutation in the family. <laughs> Incredible. And I know that while you were a medical student at Stanford, you worked in the Herzenberg Laboratory to develop non-invasive prenatal testing for Down syndrome. Could you first tell me why exactly is non-invasive prenatal testing so important? Well, basically, obstetrics and gynecology is focused mainly on the mother, and then you have an indirect assessment of the fetus. This is important because in my career, I really couldn't decide between obstetrics and pediatrics. And perhaps we'll get to later why being director of NICHD is the perfect job for someone mm -hmm. who can't decide between obstetrics and pediatrics. But non-invasive prenatal testing is really focused on either visualizing the fetus through ultrasound examination or sampling the mother's blood to look for proteins or hormones that are produced by the placenta or fetus. In the late 70s, amniocentesis became first available. And what that is, is it involves a needle into the womb of the pregnant woman. And in the 60s, it became known that the normal number of chromosomes was 46 and were conditions that were associated with the presence of an extra chromosome or deletions or additions to certain chromosomes or rearrangements of chromosomes. But these procedures, such as amniocentesis, and later on there was another procedure called chorionic villus sampling, involved a small but definite risk of miscarriage for the fetus. So there became an interest in non-invasive testing. And at the time, it was mainly focused on predicting which fetuses were going to have Down syndrome. And it happened that around that same time, so when I was a medical student at Stanford in the late 1970s, I ended up in the laboratory of the Hertzenbergs. It's a husband and wife team, Leonard and Lee Hertzenberg. And in 1960, they had a son named Michael, who is still alive and he has Down syndrome. So when I arrived in the lab, they told me their story and they said that they were very interested in finding out a way to non-invasively determine if the fetus was going to have Down syndrome because they were quite surprised. Uh, we know that, that there's an increased chance of uh, having a baby with Down syndrome if the mother is of advanced maternal age, generally in the late 30s or 40s. 
And you can't do an amniocentesis or a diagnostic procedure on every pregnant woman. It would be too risky. It's too expensive, uh, special training to do these procedures. So they were very interested in figuring out a way that a test could be offered to all pregnant women to inform the woman whether or not her fetus or baby was going to have Down syndrome. So that's where it all started and was associated with a person, Michael Herzenberg. And I'm really curious, what motivated you to pursue this project that first, most other thought was an impossible task, and second, something that took nearly 40 years from 1974 to 2011? Well, when you're young, you don't know that it's an impossible task to achieve anything. Um, and I did, in high school, I had already worked in a cytogenetics laboratory, a laboratory that studies chromosomes, Roosevelt Hospital in New York City. So I had done my senior thesis on damage to chromosomes that were caused by a type of spray adhesive. I had had experience studying chromosomes and I had studied whether or not uh, chromosomes chromosomes could be broken by external agents, including spray adhesives, but also drugs such as heroin. So I had a strong background in cytogenetics, and that's what led me to the Herzenberg lab. And they said that they had just invented a machine called the fluorescence activated cell sorter, and they wanted to use that machine to see if there were blood cells circulating from the fetus that could be extracted from the mother's blood sample and that those cells could be used to determine whether or not the fetus had Down syndrome from the mother's blood. It turned out that was a very difficult task. Biologically, those cells from the fetus don't stay in the mother's bloodstream for very long. They tend to migrate to the mother's organs. It's fascinating because that's a whole other part of the story. And it really taught me my first lesson or search is, you know, don't don't get depressed when you don't get the results that you were expecting because the results may actually be much more interesting than your initial hypothesis. But the way that this non-invasive testing translated from the lab to the clinic or to clinical practice really awaited yet another advance in technology. So it turned out that it wasn't the fetal cells that were important. It was the fetal DNA that was being released from the placenta that was the game changer. Really intriguing. You mentioned this idea of lessons in research. And I sort of want to talk a little bit more about that because you've had an incredibly illustrious research career. And just to sum up some of your accomplishments, in 1979, as you mentioned, you showed you could detect fetal cells in maternal blood. In 1990, that you could isolate DNA from these fetal cells. And in addition to helping develop non-invasive prenatal testing, you discovered fetal cell microchimerism, that fetal cells become part of the mother. You pioneered prenatal therapies for neonatal genetic disorders and contributed countless other advances to the field. So the question that I have is, what lessons have you learned along this extraordinary journey? And what would you tell students who similarly want to change the world through research? Well, I think, you know, first of all, when I was your age, I was totally focused on becoming a doctor. I was offered the opportunity to become an MD, PhD. I didn't want to do that. I really wanted to take care of patients. And what I didn't recognize at the time was that I had an insatiable intellectual curiosity and that, you know, I really was much happier in research, but research as applied to people the so-called translational research. Um, so that was sort of one lesson, learning that 
when you are hands-on with a patient, you're profoundly affecting that person and their family and their life. But then with research, you're affecting so many other people. I'm very fortunate in that I'm one of a rare handful of people who've seen their work go from spending hours at the microscope to translating to a genetic test that now has transformed prenatal care. Tens of millions of women now have the prenatal DNA test for fetal chromosome abnormalities. To be able to see that complete arc is a, is a true privilege and realizing that it's, it's not just me. I mean, I'm part of a large group of researchers working in this area, but together we have accomplished the goal of making prenatal testing safer and much more accurate. So, that was another lesson that I learned. But the third thing that I always say in my lab meetings, and I still have a research laboratory at the NIH, is the data are the data. <laughs> so time and time again, when my trainees present the data, they're disappointed or they're perplexed or they're happy. But, you know, they're not pushing themselves to ask, what's the next question? You know, what do the data mean? If the data are not what you expected. Why is that? Maybe you stumbled on something that's that's even more important. So one of the lessons that's very important is not to be so fixated on a specific hypothesis that you can't pivot because you have actually found out something that's much more important. And I guess the thing which we'll get to when we get to the government part of my career is you can then use the evidence that you've accumulated with your research to then either change medical care or change healthcare policy. Before we get to the NICHD, I want to talk about your experience at Tufts, where you founded the Mother Infant Research Institute, which was the first research institute dedicated to the health of both the mother and the child. And in fact, you are board certified in not only pediatrics, but also genetics and neonatal perinatal medicine, um, all of which I think demonstrates how your interests stand at these specialty divides. So I'm really curious about, can you share why it is so important to do research that brings together scientists from various different medical specialties? You know, I think it's very difficult for, especially nowadays, when there's so much knowledge and no one person can keep up with the explosion of, of medical information. I think the whole experience with the pandemic is a great example of that. You really do need people who have different backgrounds, different perspectives, different ideas to come together to solve problems. And I already mentioned that I could never decide between being an obstetrician gynecologist or being a pediatrician. And I recognized that really my interests were at that interface. And I ultimately decided to train in pediatrics because at the end of the day, I was more interested in what was happening with the child. But I've recognized that there's so many problems that affect children that begin in the womb. You really can't make a big difference with regard to children's health without thinking about what is happening in terms of their metabolism in the womb. What, what is the mother being exposed to? Is the mother under stress because of social injustice? Does the mother have difficulties getting health care herself? I mean, it's the fetus and the mother are so intertwined that you really 
can't approach the child without being cognizant of what's going on with the mother. And in trying to solve some of the major problems associated with complicated pregnancies, I realized that you could look at it from the mother's perspective, or you could look at it from the baby's perspective, or you could look at it from both. Because in fact, pregnancy is a stress test for the future of a woman's health. So for example, if she gets high blood pressure during pregnancy, she's at a much higher risk uh, long-term for high blood pressure, cardiovascular complications, and stroke. Or if she has diabetes during pregnancy, she has a much higher chance of developing type 2 diabetes later on in adulthood. And similarly, a baby who might be uh, smaller than expected for his or her stage of gestation, that's a baby who's been stressed in the womb. But that has major implications for the long-term health of that baby. That baby also has a higher risk of having cardiovascular disease later on in life. And that baby has a different kind of metabolism because that baby has essentially been starved in the womb. So he or she is programmed to hold on to every single calorie that he or she gets after being born. So these are all really interesting problems, but you can only approach them with a combined approach. So I had a vision of starting an institute that would really examine these problems, but both from the obstetric, the pediatric, and the basic science perspective. And so I was very fortunate that that Tufts Medical Center was supportive of the idea and happy to say that it is thriving today. It's under new leadership because I had to leave Tufts um, to go to the NIH, but they're, they're making great strides and they're in Boston. So incredible. Something that you mentioned there was this idea of perspective. And of course, one of the interesting new perspectives you have is that you are now the director of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. So for our students at home, what exactly is the NICHD and what are your responsibilities as director? So that's a great question, Simmer. So the NICHD is one of 27 institutes and centers at the National Institutes of Health. And we are, I think we're the ninth largest. We're not by any means the largest. Um, the National Cancer Institute is the largest. But um, our mission is really to advance the health of both children, pregnant women, people with physical and intellectual disabilities. So our name only reflects the pediatric part, but actually 30% of our budget involves all of reproductive health. So whether that is the development of the reproductive system during embryonic development, or whether it relates to contraception, pre-pregnancy health, pregnancy, postpartum health, gynecologic disorders, that all comes under our institute. And similarly, not all of pediatrics is covered by our institute. So we have a strong focus in intellectual and developmental disabilities. We have a strong focus in childhood education. We have a strong focus in developmental biology. Uh, we have a strong focus in developing drugs and devices specifically for our populations, including children, pregnant women, and people with disabilities. 
So we recently underwent a strategic plan to kind of define who we are and what is our vision at the, you know, at the end of the day with the research that we perform, our vision is healthy pregnancies, healthy children, healthy and optimal lives for all. Incredible. And I know that you're not only a pioneering individual, but you're also a pioneering woman in medicine. So what does it mean to you to be one of only a handful of female NIH directors and to be the nation's top pediatrician? Well, I don't think that I'm the nation's top pediatrician, (laughs) but I am passionate about the populations that we serve. I'm totally committed to improving the lives of the people we serve through research. And it's been interesting. I am the eighth director of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, which, by the way, was started in 1962. It was the brainchild of Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who was sister of President John F. Kennedy. And she was profoundly influenced by their sister, who had a developmental disability. And actually, our full institute name includes the name of Eunice Kennedy Shriver. But I am, I'm the eighth director since 1962, but I'm the first female director. And when I sometimes give slide presentations, I show a slide that shows the previous seven directors and everybody starts laughing because they're all men. But explain that I created the slide because the previous directors were all Caucasian bald men. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody said to me one time, you know, you're the first director of NICHD with a full head of hair. (laughs) (laughs) Really? And so I had to go get all the pictures and line them up. And it is true. I am the first director with a full head of hair. (laughs) Well, you're also a pioneering individual in that way, I suppose. So, of course, you mentioned earlier on Down syndrome. And Down syndrome is a fairly common genetic disorder. But certainly, there are other diseases under the purview of NICHD, which are quite rare. So my question is, how do you balance funding research for these rare diseases, given that the human impact may be more limited? But if NICHD does not fund research for them, nobody else might. Well, your question is quite valid. How do you balance rare disorders and the need to treat those rare disorders or advance care for those rare disorders with more common problems such as COVID? So one of the things that's become very apparent in the last few years is that you can learn a lot from these rare disorders. You are not only going to learn about the underlying mechanisms of the disease, but the pathways that are influenced by the disease are also important pathways for other diseases. So the argument for studying rare diseases has always been that it is really going to help you understand other conditions as well as the one that you're focused on. But it honestly is a challenge to balance the competing interests. Um, like I said before, 30% of our portfolio is in reproductive health, about 55% is in child health, and 15% is in the intellectual disabilities and in physical re- rehabilitation. So each one of those areas is important and has competing interests. So that, that is one of the challenges of my position is to really determine where are we going to lead, where are we going to partner, and where will we allow some of our other brother and sister institutes at NIH take the lead in a particular area. And in that answer, you mentioned COVID. So I'm really curious, how has the pandemic changed short-term NICHD research priorities? And what impact do you think the experience of the pandemic will have in the long term? 
Yeah, well, I hope this is a once in a lifetime experience, but everyone around the world has been profoundly influenced by the pandemic. So the question is, what have we learned from it? How can we prevent it, treat it? And what are going to be the long-term consequences of it? So it has definitely changed our priorities. We can't ignore the pandemic, especially as it affects pregnant women and children. I don't think anybody has any idea yet what the long-term consequences are going to be for children of either being at home for online education or um, developing in a womb where their mother has been infected with COVID. I mean, fortunately, we know that the virus itself doesn't seem to cross the placenta in most pregnancies, but we don't know what are going to be the long-term consequences of developing in a womb where the mother has inflammation or the mother is febrile or the mother is quite ill and on a respirator. So, you know, we have many, many years of studies ahead of us. There's no question that it's changed our priorities. Now, we did not get a special appropriation like some of the other institutes did at NIH. So we've had to be very creative and entrepreneurial in terms of either redirecting funds or working with other institutes or applying for trans NIH money to address the problems that we recognize in our populations. But, you know, we're just beginning to recognize the so-called long haul effects of COVID-19 or term that's being used now as the post-acute sequelae of COVID. And we know that some children are affected by this with extreme fatigue, difficulty with memories, difficulty with physical exertion. These are perfectly healthy teenage athletes who can barely walk a few blocks after COVID. It's quite worrisome that even the people who survive the infection have these long-term effects. That answer, you mentioned um, this idea of appropriations, which gets to this idea that research and policy, there's an intrinsic connection to the both of them. And something that I care about deeply is health literacy because I do not believe that medical knowledge is always accessible to the public. So in that vein, you often interact and communicate with individuals in various governmental bodies. So how do you make the complex research that the NICHD funds and conducts understandable to these individuals and bodies? Yeah, so that is an extremely important question, and it is an essential skill. And I think it's one of the reasons why Tony Fauci has become so well known, because he really is the premier role model for an effective communicator when it comes to science. I, I think I'm fortunate that I did not grow up in a medical family. So I was always put in a position of explaining the research that I was doing even back in high school to my parents and to extended family members. But it is an essential skill that one must have because I think perhaps one of the, you know, I hate to say that there have been benefits of the pandemic, but perhaps one of the benefits has been that it has made the world much more cognizant of the importance of research and how research led to an incredibly fast rollout of vaccines, for example. And I think certainly in the United States, many more people are aware of the National Institutes of Health than they were before the pandemic. So I, I don't think necessarily that the American public realizes what, what is happening in Bethesda 
our affiliated campuses and how their tax dollars are funding this research that has a direct effect on people's lives. But maybe they are more so aware of that if they are watching television presentations or reading news reports or blogs or uh, you know, other printed material. Of course. And going back to the research, what NICHD research priorities are you most excited about? Where do you see treatment for neonatal genetic disorders going in the next 15, 20 years? Well, I'll start with my own laboratory's research because that's something that I'm very passionate about. And we've gone from making non-invasive prenatal testing safer and more accurate. But what do you do with that information? And getting back to my pediatric roots, it's extremely important to be able to treat and I strongly believe the treatment can and should begin in the womb. Waiting until the baby's born, then there may already be brain damage, as we know is the case in Down syndrome, where there's abnormal brain development that occurs prenatally. So my research laboratory right now is focused on developing a treatment that could safely be taken by the pregnant woman that would then cross the placenta and would contribute to more typical brain development in the developing fetus with Down syndrome. So we've recently shown in a paper published in the American Journal of Human Genetics that a natural plant-derived compound called apigenin, at least in a mouse model of Down syndrome, did improve neurocognitive development and reduced oxidative stress, reduced neuroinflammation. And so we essentially have proven the principle that you could, at least in a mouse model, again, but could give something to the pregnant dam that then would result in improvement in the fetus. And that is something that I know that many women who are carrying fetuses with Down syndrome would be very interested in taking. And the reason why we focus on Down syndrome partly had to do with Michael Hertzenberg, but also because of the screening, it is a condition that there is a gold standard diagnostic test that's applied prenatally. You really couldn't do the same, for example, for autism, because we don't right now have any prenatal markers of autism, but we do for Down syndrome. So excited about the possibility of fetal treatment in general. NICHD has invested $91 million into something called the Human Placenta Project. Now, we've all been connected to a placenta at one point, our placenta functioned as our lungs, our heart, our endocrine system, our digestive system, and yet it's still very mysterious. And it's possible to study it after birth, but we really don't know as much as we need to know about what it's doing during the pregnancy. So FHD has funded this project, which has really been looking at both advanced imaging techniques as well as circulating factors that include circulating nucleic acids, exosomes, and nanoparticles that could be used for potential therapies. So it's very exciting. It's been going on for about six years now. We uh, are about ready to really analyze the progress, but at some point we hope that some of the major advances, particularly in imaging of the placenta, will 
translate to clinical care. And I guess the third thing is I'm very interested and excited about the possibilities of artificial intelligence and machine learning. So one of the projects that we are participating in as part of the Trans NIH RADx RAD program, which is looking at radical ways to address the pandemic, we are leading a program called Prevail Kids which is predicting viral-associated inflammatory disease severity in children with laboratory diagnostics and artificial intelligence. So this project is really aiming to determine who are the kids who are going to get very, very sick with complications of COVID. You know, children account right now for about 12% of the total cases in the U.S. of COVID, and yet most children are either asymptomatic or mildly affected. A small percentage of them are going to develop a post-inflammatory condition called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC, which is very severe. Most of these children end up in the ICU. They could be on a ventilator. They require support to maintain their blood pressure. They have cardiac damage. They may have damage in other organs, but almost all the kids get better within a week. But it's very scary while that is going on, and we don't know what the long-term consequences are. We also don't know who are the children who are going to have these post-acute sequelae. So what the Prevail Kids Project aims to do is take many, many thousands of children, get information, get some biosamples on them, and begin to predict who are the children who need to be followed more closely because they are at risk for these long-term complications. But that same approach we can use in other areas as well. And one of the areas that we are looking into is addressing the health inequities or health disparities in maternal mortality. So another big problem that our institute addresses, along with other institutes, is why is there racial disparity in women who die either during pregnancy or in the first year postpartum? And the rates are much higher for Black women and Native American women. And we're working with some of the other institutes, again, to address this prediction, because the majority of women who get pregnant are healthy, but then there are women who develop complications, and from that group are the women who are at risk for dying during pregnancy. So how do you know know, who is going to be in that high-risk category? So that's where I think that artificial intelligence and machine learning is going to play an important role. So those would be the three areas that I would pick. Incredible. And I think that nearly wraps up the episode. But before we go, I wanted to ask you for three pieces of advice you'd give to students interested in a career in medicine. Three pieces of advice. (laughs) People always talk about finding your passion, but you can't find your passion unless you try out a lot of different things. And I think that one of the wonderful things about medicine is it's it's a foundation for many possible potentially different careers. So that you know that that is very important because if you if you don't like what you're doing, you have hundreds of other possibilities for your career. I think another thing that's really important that I didn't recognize even when I was in medical school, was the fact that you can play an important
important advocacy role for your friends and your family who need to navigate a very, very complicated medical system in the United States. Unfortunately, I've, I've had this situation where a number of family members have been sick and have died. And, you know, at least I have had the ability to navigate the system and help them get the care that they needed to get, which would have been very difficult if they didn't understand the language to use or, you know, what buttons to push when necessary. And I'm not talking about getting VIP care. I'm just talking about getting through standard medical care in a complex society. But you know, I, I would really like to leave people with the idea that we're so privileged to be able to do medical research because at the end of the day, it's all about helping people. And, you know, that's what really gets me out of bed in the morning. Everything that we do is really focused on advancing the health of people, whether it's in the United States or it's around the world. And I, I should say that that's been one of the special privileges of being a medical researcher has been the ability to either collaborate with people around the world or visit populations around the world and understand understand their problems and their challenges and use that information to, again, make the world better, but consider problems from different perspectives. So I really cannot think of a better career and, and a career that has many different aspects to it. So you don't necessarily have to always be at the bedside. You can contribute in so many different ways. And I, I guess I do want to leave people with one thing that I didn't know. I was an undergraduate, and that is that the NIH has a wonderful program called the Post-Baccalaureate Program that sponsors you for two years of research in between college and either graduate school or medical school. And you apply and you go through the list of researchers in the intramural program. So the NIH has a campus. It looks like a very, very large college campus in Bethesda, Maryland. And each of the institutes has intramural research that is ongoing. And so if you apply to this program and you match with a, a research lab, you join that research lab for two years and you get whole support system for the post-baccalaureate uh, trainees. You get exposed to the NIH. You really take part in all of the activities at the NIH. And it's just a wonderful experience. And they have a very, very high track record for getting people into you know, the best medical schools and graduate schools. It's just a wonderful experience if you know, you're not quite ready to jump into medical school after you graduate. Incredible. I'll look after that. Thank you so much, Dr. Bianchi, for coming on the show. Uh, it's my pleasure, Simmer, and I wish you a lot of luck with your podcast. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. You can head to the description of this episode to follow us on all social media so that you don't miss out on any of our content.